Hello, and welcome to the first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, writer and podcaster, creator of The Book of Constellations. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about the show, their methods, their struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of The Milkman of St. Gaff's. It's time for The Milkman of St. Gaff's, starring Howie the Milkman. Call me Howie. I'm a milkman here on the island of St. Gaff's. St. Gaff's, in case you don't know, is an island about a hundred miles from the mainland. I didn't exactly come here to avoid the war, though it sounded awful with all those trenches and barbed wire. There are other reasons I came that maybe aren't fit to tell about right off. My first thought when I arrived... The Milkman of St. Gaff's is written, narrated, and produced by Christopher Scott McClure. The show can be described as Lovecraft meets Kafka in this fantasy horror podcast about Howie, a troubled young man who joins the milkmen on the island of St. Gaff's, only to discover that the milkmen harbor a dark and dangerous secret. Set in a time similar to our own 1914, the protagonist, Howie, seeking to avoid a terrible war, flees to the fictional island of St. Gaff's, but Howie suffers strange and terrible visions and St. Gaff's itself seems to be a haven of suspicion and sinister intrigue, hapless Howie is soon in over his head. The first episode of The Milkman of St. Gaff's, titled The Mission, finds Howie meeting his new boss, the authoritarian Corwin, who wants his milkmen to serve as spies on the island. We then follow Howie on his route, where he suffers several setbacks, mundane and bizarre. I spoke to Chris via Zoom. Tell me a little bit about your audio drama, The Milkman of St. Gaff's. What kind of show is this? What does it mean to you? Uh, well, that's actually one of the things about the show is that it's a little bit hard to, to classify. It's not what screenwriters would call high concept. I, I label it as a horror podcast, but it's kind of a fantasy podcast or uh, maybe with some magic realism. It's a little it's a little bit hard to pin down. I think that uh, actually makes it a little bit harder to get it out there because people aren't quite sure what to expect from the description. No, I, I completely understand. Horror is a huge popular genre in audio drama. Every time I think about trying to enter the market with a horror title, I kind of like, wow, how do you make yourself stand out? Did these thoughts occur to you when you were writing this? Or how did you approach making yourself unique or making it stand out? Well, I wasn't intimidated because I didn't actually know a lot about the space when I began. I just had this idea for a show. I listened to a few really popular podcasts and I just jumped right in. And later I discovered that, uh, yeah, there's a, there are a huge number of, of horror podcasts and a huge number of sci-fi podcasts. And I, I really didn't give it a lot of thought. I just had my own story I wanted to do and I, I just did it. And uh, hopefully it's going to work out. 
I can appreciate that too. Um, I actually am trying to work on being a professional writer, you know, working on novels and things like that. And, you know, that's a very solitary pursuit, you know, especially if you're sending out your query letters all the time and not getting many nibbles and it feels very isolated and you're wondering, am I doing things right? But then a friend of mine said, you should do a audio drama podcast. And I thought about that. So I said, why not? Let's just jump in. And I think I've been doing the same thing, just trying to figure out how to do things and just kind of muddling through and hopefully getting something good out of it. What's your background? How did you um, get into audio drama? Well, I'm a former academic, actually. I got my PhD at Georgetown in uh, Washington, D.C. I taught for a while at the University of California, Davis, and I had a postdoc at Harvard. I wrote a bunch of articles. I wrote a book. And then I just decided that I wanted a different direction. For a number of reasons, I decided to try to get into screenwriting, actually. And so back here in Toronto, I uh, was in a screenwriting program. And then the pandemic hit and I was at home a lot and I was finding the process of getting screenplays out into the world very uh, frustrating and difficult. And I thought, why not just make a podcast? I can put it out right now. I don't need to ask anyone's permission. I can do it fairly cheaply because I, I happen to know uh, how to use Logic, the, the Apple program for recording things. Uh, I'm an amateur musician as well, so I just happen to know a little bit about how to record audio. And I thought, I can just throw this together in my basement right now. And uh, and so that's what I did. And it, it was a, a great decision because you get involved in a, a really warm and welcoming community. You immediately can get some feedback. It's fun. You can get some ad revenue. Just all around, it's been a, a great decision. Um, now, you've got 21 episodes at the time of this recording. Is that right? That's right. You've also gotten picked up by the Rusty Quill Network. I did. That's right. Uh, so I think a lot of people who maybe are coming at audio drama from a new perspective, myself included, would be curious about what it's like to work with a network. What are the benefits? What are the drawbacks? And how does one become affiliated with a, a network? Well, uh, to answer the last part of the question, they just got in touch with me. Somebody over there heard the podcast and liked it, and they just got in touch. And, and that was about it. I didn't really do any outreach or anything to get uh, involved with them. I think different networks do things differently. Rusty Quill has been great to work with. They don't they don't acquire the show or anything like that. They don't own the rights. They don't own anything. They basically just help with marketing, distribution, and uh, and advertising. So it's it's really a pretty straightforward relationship. It's not a, as big and intrusive as a process as as some people might think. Let's talk about your first episode here. You would describe the the overall tone of the show as Lovecraftian and Kafka esque which I think is great. Um, now, Kafka, when I think of Kafka, sorry, that's hard to say, isn't it? <laughs> Kafka-esque, yeah. Kafka-esque, <laughs> yes. When I think of Kafka-esque, um, I'm thinking it's a mood that is oppressive, uh, nightmarish, unnecessarily complicating and frustrating and so forth. My job here is a simple one. Oversee the installation of the electric thermalizer and with it, Wrestle the bacteria count in our milk down to absolutely zero. We shall also safeguard the uninterrupted delivery of milk to the rapidly expanding population of St. Gaffs. In doing so, we will uphold a cornerstone of our culture, our heritage, our civilization. But one of the things about Kafka is that his characters usually are complicit in their own situation. 
there's something about themselves that makes their the world they live in a little bit worse. What drew you to the this particular point of view? And this is a larger question is, why did you want to tell this particular story at this time? Well, that's a good uh, two-part question. So the first part was, why do I, why did I make this, in, well, why did I take the Kafka-esque approach? Right. What appeals to you about that? I don't know if it appeals to me. I find it more... <laughs> fair. That's fair. <laughs> sort of alarming. Um, yeah, it's strange how you, uh, you conceive of a show and then when it actually comes out, it winds up taking a slightly different direction. And I would say that there are a lot of things happening on the mainland in this world that I've created that are much more Kafka-esque. And Howie, the main character of the show, is on this island, and it's actually a little bit of a respite from the the insanity on the mainland. Uh, and as one person on Reddit said, it's actually a little bit more like Lovecraft meets Maybury. Oh, right. And I, I think that actually makes sense. I mean, obviously, I picked the, the intro music has that feel to it. At the same time, I do think that Howie's sort of a Kafka-esque character. You mentioned that uh, in Kafka, the characters, they're not rebelling really against the situation they're in. They're sort of going along with it and contributing to the sort of madness in it. And I think Howie's a little bit like that. He's not really trying to make the world a better place in any way. He makes things difficult for himself. He's involved with this bizarre organization with the Milkmen. It's not really clear what they're up to, but he wants to be involved. I, I guess I just found something about that appealing because it uh, reflects the way I sometimes think about the modern world as being sort of incomprehensible, difficult to deal with. Uh, that's not the way I feel all the time, but I think there is a certain way of looking at the modern world that is sort of disturbing like that, and I wanted to put it in the show. Why did I make this show right now in terms of tone or story? I don't think there was any particular reason Um I mean, what really happened was I was at home. As I said, I had just finished the screenwriting program, so I didn't have uh, any kind of steady work. So I wound up watching my son a lot. It was very, very uh, stressful, as it was for, I think, a lot of people. And this idea just grew. I think it was a little bit of an outlet for some of the anxiety that I was going through. I had actually written a, a screenplay that is based on two of the other characters in the podcast. And I wrote that a while ago. And I don't remember why exactly, but I decided if I make a podcast, I want to make it sort of a spinoff. And I decided, well, there's this very minor character in the screenplay called Howie, and he's this milkman. And I thought, why don't I make it about him? And the character just seemed to come fully formed out of my head, you know, although he's very, very weird, there are certain things that really resonate with me personally. And so in a way, it's a bit of an outlet for that. And the other thing I would say is that it's much, much weirder than I thought it was going to be. I, I had a couple of <laughs> friends listen and uh, they just thought, wow, you're really going through something. This is very, very strange. It's much stranger even than the than the screenplay it's based on. Like, what's going on with you? And I didn't think it was that bizarre, but that's they, they were trying help. to get you help. Is that it? They were. I guess so. They were looking for help. Um, <laughs> and it's a funny thing. I mean, a lot of people complain, oh, you know, my friends and my family don't listen to my podcast. But I honestly like I don't really want my friends and family to listen to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to have the people listening be quite far away and not really know me. Um, but, but yeah, I guess so it was kind of a reaction to the very stressful time that we've all been going through lately. Let's talk about Howie, because I think he's an interesting character, too. First of all, he seems to be an unreliable narrator that I don't quite trust that everything he's telling me is what's really happening. Um, you know. <laughs> 
Uh, well, I mean, obviously he has that dream sequence about the ocean, and he mentions that this has happened before and might happen again. He's seeing the gargoyle move and he's hearing sounds. And, you know, so the question becomes is what is what is real and what is in Howie's mind? He's also seems incredibly naive. And I think both of these factors make us want to relate to him. You know, like, you know, he seems to be a likable enough guy. He wants to help out. And yet he's he sometimes actually seems sociopathic. There's that sequence where he talks about running over a muskrat um, or trying to. Um, right. My truck rattled away over the coast road. The red moon was still up. The fisherman's cottage was about five miles out of town. A muskrat waddled across the road. I aimed the truck right at it, wondering what kind of a sound it would make if I ran it over. The little blighter wasn't moving too quickly, but I veered away at the last second. And of course, you've got this delivery style that he's just very, very simple and very naive. And he's talking about, you know, running over an animal. And that just kind of made me sit back a little bit and go, wait, what? Um, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, he's he's a pretty complicated character, I think. But I think you you nailed it. He, he's naive. We kind of want to like him, but he's also pretty horrible in many ways. He's not necessarily really nice, but there's something somewhat likable about him. And, and I think that contrast is what I find interesting about him. As the show goes on, you learn a little bit more about his background, which doesn't really excuse some of the things he does. But I hope that you empathize with him a little bit while at the same time being sort of repelled by him. That's a fine line to walk, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to like make a character do terrible things and yet not completely alienate your audience. Like the obvious example would be something like Walter White from Breaking Bad, who is just, he does these really awful things over the course of the show, but we're rooting for him the entire time. Right. Howie is, you know, he's hearing voices and he's seeing visions, and then he's deliberately lying to his boss, Corwin, about Travis's activities just to get himself off the hook. Yeah, I think Walter White, I, I guess the difference would be Walter White was somebody who was living a very ordinary life and we'll find out later that he really had the chance to be a big shot and really could have been a big deal in the world. And he wasn't. And this, these activities ostensibly are about helping out with medical bills, but really he wants to make something big of himself. And Howie is not like that. He doesn't, he's got very, very middle of the road ambitions. He wants a job. He wants a house. He wants to get married. He's, he's not, he doesn't have really exciting ambitions for himself. Um, there's, there's no ambition there particularly. No, well, he wants to get from he wants to do well. He, uh, it, he becomes enamored of the idea of getting promoted to being having a red badge and he, he wants to marry the girl down the road. But it's pretty ordinary stuff. You know, he's not Tony Soprano. He doesn't want to be a big mob boss or anything. He's just very, very regular, not very clever, uh, not very nice, a little bit wide eyed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no. And yeah. And I think the what's interesting is he has these very sort of ordinary ambitions, but he's living in a world of war and strangeness and sinister surveillance. You know, it's almost like he's just he wants to have a normal life. That's all he really wants. But his own circumstances and the world he lives in are anything but. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he, we find out in the first episode is that he left the mainland to get away from the war. He was afraid of getting drafted. The war is su supposed to be like World War One. It's a horrible trench war that's just been dragging on. It's complicated and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And he just wants to get away from there. Uh, we find out later that he's got other other reasons for leaving as well. 
you know, and we've been talking a lot about some of the, the creepier aspects of this, but there's actually a lot of humor in this, too. There were some moments I thought were really funny. One of my favorite is is the interrogation. You go, as we talk about, well, I took out my notebook, but then I thought that might look suspicious. So then I put it up again. And I'm like imagining this guy doing this, you know, and like that's clearly not <laughs> subtle at all. No. Um, might he be signaling some enemy craft out at sea with the lantern? And what a hero I'd be if I uncovered such a foul conspiracy. So I said to him, Oh, Travis, I had a bit of a question for you if you don't mind too much. What is it, Howie? I got out my notebook and the pencil. I opened it to the first blank page. Then I thought writing might make him suspicious, so I put the notebook away again. I decided to sound casual, put Travis at ease. Were you watching for someone at sea out there, Travis? And I thought, you know, that was really funny. You know, one of the things I really like is you use music to great effect in this episode. The ocean scene, for example, is a great scene that the music really ratchets up the tension. And then also the first time he meets Stormy, you've got that lovely sort of melodic <laughs> dreamlike music. And then it just, you know, if it wasn't an anachronism, I could hear the record scratch when she turns and looks at him. You know what I mean? It just yeah. cuts off suddenly. Today, Mr. Greenwood wasn't there, but she was his daughter. With her raven black hair as smooth as silk, she was cutting thorns off a rose bush. I stood and watched her clipping away. She moved like a poem in a book. Then I must have caught her eye because she turned with a start. Hey, what are you doing there staring at me like that? So I thought that was really effective. Well, thanks very much. Yeah, I really enjoy uh, that aspect of it. I don't really enjoy editing my voice. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not a voice actor. I just did the best I could without uh, being able to, to hire a bunch of other people. But the sound design, I really, really enjoy. I really like putting the music and the sound effects together. I will say this uh, about your voice. The choice that you made is effective for Howie, I think. You've got that wide-eyed innocence um, <laughs> nailed, and I think it suits him. There's an almost... I don't want to say monotone, but it's the sameness to his delivery, which I think makes sense because he's not that complicated a guy, at least in his conscious mind, you know? Yeah, I think that that makes sense what you say, that he's got this sort of, he often doesn't react as strongly as you might think to what's going on around him. Right. And that's in itself a little perplexing. I mean, he experiences a lot of very, very unusual and often quite horrifying things. Uh, so yeah, he's sort of got this flat, wide-eyed delivery all the time, no matter what's going on around him. So you've got uh, 21 episodes out as of this recording. Mm -hmm. And do you have a plan? Is there a, is there a final episode or is, you, is this something you can see extending yourself as, as long as you're interested? Well, I hope to extend it. Before I began, I, I sketched out the broad outlines of the first season and that will be coming to an end on episode 25. So I've got a few more to go. Before I began, I knew how the last couple of episodes were going to go. So everything's sort of an aiming in that direction. There have been a couple of twists and turns that I wasn't expecting to put in, but I did. Uh, but no, there's definitely going to be another season. Uh, I also do a patron-only podcast that is set in the same world and based on the previous screenplay. So it's based on two other characters in the, the town of St. Gas. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm planning to keep it going as long as I can. I really enjoy it. I think it's a big world, a lot of interesting characters. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping to just keep it going. As I said, I began with an ambition to be a screenwriter, and I think the first few things I wrote were things that I thought would maybe be popular or things that would work well on TV today. And at a certain point, I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to write whatever I want. And the story just kind of came to me and this world just kind of came to me. I don't try to 
interpret it too much or examine it. I have a background in philosophy, but I don't try to understand exactly what's going on or psychologize it or anything. If there is something very personal about this story. And so it's very, very gratifying to be able to get it out there. What keeps me motivated is wanting to tell more of this story. Also, getting feedback from people who listen is uh, just unbelievably nice. I mean, a lot of people write in and they say they like this or they like that about the show. And that, that is really, really a, a huge source of encouragement. How do you measure success? Well, I guess I would measure success in terms of being able to keep going, being able to afford to keep going. Mm -hmm. uh, I do still do some teaching uh, here in Toronto. I do other types of freelance work. Luckily, I got a, a grant from the Canada Council for the Arts for this, and I'm, I'm very grateful for them. That, that really helped a lot. Was there an episode or a point in, in the series where suddenly your audience took off? Is, was there a moment that sort of was the turning point you thought, aha, I've got really something going on here? So one of the, the things, I don't know if this is everyone's experience, but before I launched the first episode, I got on Twitter, I made a Howie Milkman account. Uh, I just started to see what people were doing and talking to people a little bit. And as I said at the beginning, the community is very, very warm, very, very nice, very, very supportive, As even on Twitter and Reddit, which in other corners of that world, it's, they're not very pleasant places. Twitter can be very nasty. It's just not at all like that uh, with the audio drama people. And so there was actually some interest right when I began. I think a lot of the people who were in you know, the space listened and were very supportive. And I also was paying a lot of attention to some of the other podcasts that were coming up that were beginning at the same time as mine. And uh, we kind of supported each other a little bit or you know, talked about each other's shows. And so that was really great. As far as big milestones, there was no episode really where suddenly things jumped. I think a lot of people, and, and I'll put myself in this category too, since we're sort of starting off, it becomes really easy to constantly refresh the, the download statistics, you know, and, and look at those numbers and, right. and then try to get as many follows on Twitter and all this kind of stuff. I launched about a month ago, and I think... Um, the first couple of weeks, I had to really kind of keep talking to myself about not falling into despair. You know, it says like, it takes time. You've only been doing it for two weeks. Come on, give it a break. Right. But I, yeah, so I do think there is a, it takes time and it's a process. You just have to wait and keep with it and, and trust that the process will yield something good. Yeah, I definitely agree. As for statistics, probably like a lot of people, you're at first just astonished that anybody listens. And then you <laughs> see, oh, there's people in this country and that country. And you right. know, wow, that's kind of cool. that All these people are listening from different places. That's really neat. As for social media, I mean, it's, it's good to keep up with what's going on. I don't think there's any correlation at all between having a Twitter following you. I mean, I guess like for the, the heavy hitter shows, they have huge followings on Twitter, but I think that it's the, the reverse. I don't think the large Twitter following caused them to have big numbers. Uh, but yeah, you just have to have faith in what you're doing. And if the story is good, I think it'll, it'll be successful. Looking back at your first episode, how do you feel about it? You know, I actually, I don't go back and listen to my episodes very much. So I actually listened to the first episode today for the first time, uh, I don't know, maybe since I put it out. Wow. And it was an interesting experience. I, I was impressed by how many things I put in there, little seeds that I actually wound up following through on. I didn't remember that I'd had so much stuff packed into the first, all, all sorts of little details, even the muskrat, all, all, all that will, will ties in or will tie in later. I, you know, I was, I was pleased with it. Although I, I'm not a voice actor, I don't think I've got a tremendous acting voice. My voice doesn't bother me. Uh, I thought maybe I was speaking a little too quickly, but no, I, I, I was pretty pleased with it, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. What were you trying to accomplish with the first episode? I was trying to set up the character in the world. 
really, this could have been set in a lot of different places. It, uh, in hindsight, I didn't have to make the world the way I did. I think the main draw is Howie's character. That's it. I was just trying to get the, the ball rolling as far as showing the world and showing this strange guy, Howie. Well, you do drop a few forwards in there, right? There's the question of now that he has to spy on the family of the girl he's enamored with and right. um, and, the, and the war and then the, the visions under the ocean and who is that across the table. So there's a lot of little things there that tug at you, tug as, as a listener. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah. Do you know Mr. Greenwood who lives on Mercy Street? Corwin asked. Yes, I do. He's on my route. Good, good. This Mr. Greenwood came to me a few days ago. He fancies himself a bit of an engineer. He was suspicious of our new thermalizer. Thought he might know better than the Department of Lactic Affairs about the best way to preserve the integrity of our product. That's just awful. It is, Howie. I'm glad you see it that way. I'd like you to keep a close eye on the Greenwood household. Spend some time with them. Ingratiate yourself with them. You bring me any information at all that seems out of the ordinary. I thought about Mr. Greenwood and his little machines. I thought about Stormy cutting thorns off the rose bushes. The Greenwoods seem... What was that, Howie? He glared down at me. A wave of blackness crossed his face and I felt like I was falling into some black pit. Yes, sir, I'll keep a close eye on them, Mr. Corwin. Good. Now get spraying. I don't want to see a solitary fly in here tomorrow. The sinister elements of the Milkmen of St. Gaffs will certainly appeal to fans of Lovecraftian horror or Kafkaesque oppression. But the strangeness is tempered by the character of Howie. Naive, overwhelmed, and a little broken, Howie is trying to make sense of a confusing and scary world he's not equipped to understand. The Milkman of St. Gaffs is available on most major podcast platforms, or see the show notes for webpage links. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them, and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. The show's webpage is thefirstepisodeof.com. If you're an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, send an email to thefirstepisodeof at gmail.com. If you like down-to-earth sci-fi audio drama, check out my show, The Book of Constellations, wherever you get your podcasts. Keep telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time.